Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your compassion, your mercies, Lord, that are new every morning. Thank you for grace. Thank you for provision. Thank you for guidance, Lord. Continue to lead us and direct us, Lord, that we might glorify you in our ministry to you, to one another. Help us to fulfill our job as imagers, Lord. Do it perfectly like you did, Lord Jesus. And now we ask, Father, that you would open the scriptures to us by the power of your spirit, illuminate our hearts and our minds through revelation and inspiration of what you've given us here, Lord. Bless the children as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who need to go back, you may leave now. God bless you. Turn with me to Leviticus. I don't know if I owe you an apology or not, but um, I didn't let you know that we're in the book of Leviticus now. (laughs) (laughs) Some of you uh, were wondering a while back, and I've been praying. We've spent quite a quite a time, not uh, not quite a year in, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, and and then we had our hiatus through that uh, the summers we did uh, the Gifts of the Spirit and Revival, and uh, you, you remember uh, June, July, and August. And so now we're back into the track through the Scriptures, and back into the Old Testament, and we're in Leviticus uh, chapter 1. You can Take your time getting there as I work through some introduction here. Um, So you'll have time to get your device out and get there. Um, But how do I come to God and what do I bring? And so as we think about our culture and where we're at, we're probably about 40, uh, 50 years into this me generation. Uh, You know, if... The baby boomers were the pleasure-seeking generation rebelling against the status quo, which I confess that was part of that. <laughs> the me-gens are focused on self and individualism, and that seems to be the guiding thought in our culture today. We've got a number of these special interest groups, and with the aid of technology, we've developed the ultimate expression of it, the selfie. Think of how often when you're in conversation with people, the word me and I is used in communication. So this individualistic thought is growing. I don't see any signs of it weakening. And the technologies that we have developed and are developing are only going to push us further down the road in that direction. You know, it, it leads to isolation. It leads to us having the ability to further hide ourselves from society and from one another. And I don't think that's healthy. Individualism and selfishness of this nature was sort of frowned on uh, in previous generations. It was, there was an idea of community, an idea of society and contributing to it and not you know, serving self so directly. And uh, what's unfortunate about this movement is it's, it's affecting the body of Christ. As a pastor, this is, you know, it's a... It's a deep concern to me as a pastor and a follower of Christ. Um, 
but I, I just see people, believers, you know, I'm talking about born-again believers, true followers of Christ are becoming more and more comfortable uh, staying at home and watching the church services on the, you know, online or on the television and, you know, having this attitude, well, you know, I can get what I need from those teachings and from what I observe and hear online. No, I can worship God at home just like I can worship God at church. Well, you can worship God at home. In fact, I totally encourage that. You know, worship the Lord all the time, wherever you're at. And all that you say, all that you do should be an act of worship in that regard because we're dedicated to Him. We're called to image Him. But there's something you cannot do, and that is interact with the body of Christ when you're at home. And this is what's lacking in the church today. They have lost the concept, and we've talked about this a couple weeks ago in, in more detail, the concept of the body of Christ, the need for one another, the need to go and assemble with other believers, to interact, to share uh, your life with other people. Um, I wouldn't argue that you can find tremendous teaching online. We've got some of the most gifted teachers in our country and in the world today. And there's some, they can bring the word and explain it just beautifully. And so, um, but there's something that you'll not receive staying at home. And that is, as I said, that interaction, that koinonia, that oneness that is so needed to keep us balanced and centered in our walk with God. None of us are autonomous. We need one another. We're connected. Paul emphasizes this through his epistles in the New Testament. And so uh, another observation in regards to this me generation is their view of the church. Uh, the lo- and I, what I mean by that is the local assembly or the local expression uh, of the church. And um, <laughs> I kind of see people looking at church these days like they look at restaurants. You know, they, you go to a certain restaurant because you want, well, you might want this type of meat because that's sort of how what I do. It's like, oh, what do I want? Do I want chicken, beef, or, you know, pork? Uh, you know, what ethnic group of, you know, meal do I want here? You know, so I start, you know, looking, thinking along those lines. And so I think sometimes people look at the church that way. What does the church have to offer me? What's on their menu? You know, if you're a young married couple with children, you know, well, first of all, it's got to have a children's ministry because after all, you know, I've had a rough week and I need a place to like dump the kids for just a moment so I can breathe. I have nothing wrong with that, by the way. I think that's, we love to minister to kids, by the way, in that regard. And believe me, I raised five of them. I get it. (laughs) You know, you need a break sometimes. You need, you know, to be ministered to. And the children themselves obviously uh, need that ministry. But sometimes I think, People aren't cognizant of the idea of what their motivation is. They, they're looking at churches as what they can get out of it. And what's in it for me? And this just goes along with that me-centered generation. It, it's all individualism. It's all about what I can glean. And, and, you know, you get yours, I get mine, you know. And this is really uh, not the way it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, I think to some degree this is fostered by uh, the way we do church in the Western culture now. Uh, you know, the pastors are measured by how many people are in their congregation and how big their facilities are and, and what ministry can offer the people. You know, after all, we, we're a, 
we're a, rest, a spiritual restaurant here that can offer quite a menu and draw quite a broad spectrum of people into our fold and, you know, and therefore, you know, collect what we need to collect. And, you know, but we have these multiple services going on and people, we come in, we get out, we come in, we get out. And I'm not against that. I, I'm not. I know it's sort of, I just, I'm sort of maybe pointing out some negative things here, but it's not that at all. It's just that I want to make people aware of what's going on. If you heard people in and heard people out, then where's the time to interact with one another? And that's why we've taken steps to encourage people to stay. We provide a meal after church here. Well, it's more like a brunch. But it's enough to get you by. It's enough to get the kids with a low blood sugar by till you get home and to the afternoon and 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 have a real meal if you so choose. But um, you know, we we are filled with uh, we fill our weekends with things that we want to do, and somehow God and His place of priority and preeminence seems to get squeezed out, and it all becomes about us. It all becomes about what we want to do, and so um, God help us to examine our hearts. And so as we come to the Old Testament, I know that there's ministers more than I care to admit that are, you know, proclaiming we really don't need the Old Testament. I mean, come on. I mean, it's no longer relevant. Excuse me? I think not. It is the Word of God. It is given for our inspiration. The Old Testament was given for our example. You think we're different than the children of Israel? There's a reason God called them children. Of Israel, they were the children of Jacob, yes, but they never quite grew up as they were supposed to be, and they got into trouble. And their their lives, their history, the history of the nation was written for our instruction, so we could look at how human nature is and how it played out through that culture, and we can learn from that. And so, and I got to be honest with you, there are some apprehensions about teaching through the book of Leviticus, really. Really? Whoa. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Levitical priesthood's like obsolete, bro. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's the fulfillment. It's the types and the shadows that are important here. I believe that the entire Bible is relevant to Christian living today. The Holy Spirit can open up your eyes and bring application to you and understanding to your heart. So... The Bible is relevant, and so that means Leviticus is relevant. We just have to dig in, right? Allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and show us. So the book of Leviticus is about, it's really a book of worship. It's a, a book that instructs us, instructs us how to worship and serve and be obedient to the Lord. And so it really, what we're talking about here and what worship is all about is fellowship with God. The whole idea of Israel uh, having come out of Egypt, there at the base of the mountain, receiving instructions on how to build the tabernacle and all the equipment that was necessary, uh, the tools and equipment that God ordained and set apart as, as holy unto him to, to teach the people how to worship. And so we had all the construction and, and given to us in regards to how it was to be put together. Now it's how to do it, how to perform these ceremonies and things that are now found here uh, in the book of Leviticus. Because worship of God, whether we like it or not, is always on his terms. 
Who are we in our sophisticated arrogance to tell God how he wants to be worshipped? I mean, how do, does any of us really know innately how to worship God? What does Jesus really mean when he said, those that worship God shall worship him in spirit and in truth? You think we intuitively know that? We don't. We need to be taught. We need to be instructed. And so thank the Lord that he's given us a book in particular. And so I hope we can enjoy this. The first offering that is talked about here in the, in the first seven chapters, we've got the five uh, offerings that we'll go through here. And the first one uh, is a, the burnt offering. And I love this because in a couple places it says, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And see, this is what worship is. Worship is to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Now, we can all relate to this. Most of us in this room and uh, at our home, we have a, an outdoor barbecue. We have a grill that we can you know, turn on, heat up, and put our wonderful choice of meat. And, and I don't know about you, but I love that smell. And when Israel would come together, and they would bring their offerings, and they would fire up the grill the altar, and they would place those sacrifices on there, it would really smell. Now, if you're familiar with the topography in Israel, when they, and this is sort of jumping ahead into their history, but it's somewhat relevant to, to, to the point here. Uh, they had the two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ephraim there, and, and, and they would, um, that's not the right one for the other mountain, but this is relevant. The two mountains, and in the middle was a sort of a, um, a valley, and right in the middle of the valley was a raised part. And what God had perfectly designed this so that the, they placed the tabernacle there under Joshua. And so what you had is a simply an assembly of people in a, like an amphitheater, it's sort of around like a bowl. And the people would put the tribes would assemble, and they could look down in this raised area and see this offering going on. Now, if you didn't have any wind, and you've got thousands of animals being offered, you'd have this smoke rising. And you know what that all smells like? Oh, yeah. It's lunchtime, right? <laughs> but that's what, that was the setting. But this, as these offerings are brought by individuals to the Lord, and they were offered upon the altar as they were offered in sincerity and transparency before God, God was, it, it, he wasn't really necessarily smelling the physical part that we might smell. He's receiving the odors that come from a sincere heart of contrition that loves him. And, and the expression of the same love that he has towards us, the Old Testament word is hesed, loving kindness. God expresses his love to his Hesed, his loving kindness towards us. What does he expect in return? That same loyal love from us. And so this is, by offering these offerings, this is what the Old Testament worshiper was doing. He was offering his love gift back to God. And so as we come to this particular chapter, and I think this is important that we answer the question, you know, how do I come to God, and what do I bring? I think one of the sins of the American church is that it has become about self. Well, I don't really like the way they sing there. I don't like 
the music. I want contemporary. I don't want contemporary. I want hymns. I can't stand that contemporary music. You know, and everybody's got their their desires and their wants. I, you know, that's part of who we are. But I just want to remind us that worship is not for us. <laughs> it's really for Him, and it belongs to Him. And I think it's important for us to to really take that to heart. Now, I'm not against any of those things and 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 how people do their liturgy, their order of service and the things that they do within their church. There are some churches I'm built a certain way, you're built a certain way. I'm not going to feel comfortable in certain things be, in certain situations because of what's going on and and you might not feel that way. But there is a church for you. That's why I don't think the Lord's against denominations. Why do we have denominations? Well, because we have multi-personalities within the human uh, domain. We, we Lots of different characters. And there's certain things that resonate with you and resonate with me that are different from other people. And so God allows different expressions. He's flexible in that regard. I'm, I'm quite sure. But one of the problems I see in the church is that people come to the church come to the assembly of the saints to express worship with the body of Christ, but they come before God empty-handed. They come to receive. But when we look at what goes on in this system, is that it wasn't about what people could receive. It was about what people would give. This is the kind of heart that a true believer grows in. This is the maturity that comes about as you walk with the Lord and you follow the Lord, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And so church isn't about me, what I can get out of it. I come to church to minister to God and to give to God glory and honor and recognize the gloriness person that he is and thereby encourage my brother and sister who, and maybe lend a hand and help them bear the burden that they're uh, carrying right now. It isn't about me, but I, I found my own life that has a grow in this, my own personal needs are met above and beyond what I could ever think that they would be met. God is so faithful. And so I do believe the questions of how I come to God and what I bring to God uh, are answered in this book for us. We have the logical order of Leviticus given to us here. Uh, You have you know, Genesis, the beginnings, and then, of course, Exodus, the uh, departure from Egypt. Um, but it's one of the five books referred to as the Pentateuch. Pena means five, to uh, book or to implement. Um, and in Exodus, you had, as I said earlier, they uh, constructed the temple and made all the equipment. Now they're going to put all that into use. And so this is... Uh, properly placed after, right in the middle of the Pentateuch, we have how to worship God. That is to, as that is the center of the Pentateuch, so is worship to be the center of your life, my life. You were called and created to worship God in all that you do, to express and image Him while you are on this planet. That is your mission, and it's your mission to seek Him and ask Him to show you how to best do that. Jesus is the only person that's lived on this planet that ever did it perfectly. I love what Philip said. You know, 
question. Well, hey, Jesus, you know, before you leave, show us the Father. We'll be happy. We'll be completely satisfied if you show us the Father. What's he saying? What's he asking? Show us what Yahweh's like. Show us what the Father's like. And Jesus, like, sort of that flabbergasted look, if you could ever, if you could ever have that one, like, what? Have you not, have I not been with you so long? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus was the perfect expression in human form of the nature and character of God. And this is what our calling is, to express the nature and character of God through the way that we live and the works that we perform. So you, if you, again, as you look back through how God has ordered the scriptures, he, in there in Exodus chapter 6, he tells that he's come down, he's heard their groanings and their pain. For over a, a number of generations, they have suffered under the bondage of, of the Egyptian rule, controlled as slaves. God said, I've come down to rescue out of, you out of that bondage, to redeem you. I'm going to take you as my people. And so this is what he's doing for his people. He's revealing himself to them as their God. And in redeeming them, he's going to show them how to live and how to worship. And so this is the beautiful part of how God has placed his word in such a perfect logical order for us. Teach us how to approach him to learn that which is holy, to learn that which is dedicated and set apart, to discern between the holy and the profane, something that we as Gentiles don't really grasp as much as the Jewish people. It was drilled into their culture through their history, separating the clean from the unclean. And so we are to learn that as God's followers. Now, it should come as no surprise to us that we don't have, as I said earlier, a clue on how to worship God or how to approach God acceptably. In fact, we usually fear what we don't understand. We're intimidated by it. And we have a couple different things going on in our minds when it comes to the worship of God. First of all, we're ignorant of how to do it and how to approach Him. And secondly, we're intimidated by him we have a within all of us we have a conscience we do things with knowledge we know when we cross the line we know when we say things or we have an attitude that's not as it should be and and to come to god when we start thinking about god our conscience is usually awakened and we instantly begin to do a little survey of where we may have crossed the line because after all we know that god is perfect and we know that we're not. And there's just that natural built-in condemnation. And so we resist coming to it. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and that men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so nobody likes to have their works exposed. And so this is, but this is what happens. There's this war within our minds that goes on in our approach to God. 
And naturally, whether we want to admit it or not, we are in enmity with God because of this. And so the other thing that comes into play here is we can't imagine how awesome and great God is. Now, I was eating some yogurt and some raspberries this morning for breakfast. And I just was caught for a moment staring at the raspberry, these little round pockets of sweet goodness, <laughs> all packed together in a berry. And I thought, you know, how ingenious that God makes this food that keeps on making itself because of the seeds over generations and generations. And it's just so yummy. And I think, I can't, I can't make anything. I can only take the materials that are available that have already been made and assemble them to create something that may be usable. But I didn't make the, the hardware. I didn't make the, the stuff. God made that. He, and if you just look at creation, it, it's pretty scary when you think the creation is awesome. So what does that say about the creator? And you, none of us can you know, get our mind around that. That God, there's, well, just think for a moment. God knows everything. Well, you're already just blown away immediately. I can't handle, I mean, God isn't Google, right? Google thinks they're God, but that's another story. I mean, God has all knowledge. God has all power. I'm just glad he's loving. <laughs> so we have in the field of psychology what they call cognitive dissonance. It means you... You have a mental discomfort <laughs> that takes place when you experience something that is contradictory to what you maybe already believe. You've got these ideas or these values, and what you're hearing, wait a minute, how does that fit? Oh, no way. And you just, you, you just sort of separate your head from your shoulders type of thing. And so we have this sort of a built-in thing because we can't comprehend the greatness of a God. This is what Paul says, God as a person is incomprehensible. The magnitude of his being is beyond us. The thing about God, and this is important, is that he can only be known by revelation. You cannot know God by intellect alone. God uses our minds, and we process things about God within our minds. But God is a spirit, and God must be revealed to our spirit for us to know him and to have a relationship with him. It is something deeper than the mind could ever go. And this is what escapes a lot of scholars, people who know the Bible. They know the language, the original languages. They work in them. They work through the scriptures, but they don't know the author. They have an intellectual knowledge, but they haven't taken the time to allow their spirit to be made alive through personal relationship with God. God can only be known by revelation. Jesus conveyed this. Turn with me, if you will. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 35 through 48. That's music to my ears when I hear pages turning. People bring their Bibles to church. 
John 6, 35 through 48. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given to me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from God comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that the one who may eat it may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And so the whole idea here that I want to point out is that it is the Father who draws people to Jesus, draws people to the knowledge of Christ. He's drawing them to Jesus and granting people access to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the promise there in verse 37. If anyone does this, comes to Jesus, he will in no way be cast out. He will not be rejected. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Well, I've done so many things wrong. Oh, well, step in, line up. Who hasn't? You know, you're the exception to the rule. I think not. Notice here he says, no one comes to Jesus will be lost. No one. And now in verse 40, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. This is the work of the Trinity, all working together to bring people to the knowledge of God. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to understand his nature and character. But it's always going to be on his terms. And so what we see here, getting back on track once again, um, is that God had to set things up a little bit. Jesus, just, he couldn't come, you know, as it were, right after the book of Genesis. God needed to set things up and, and, and put it, his plan in to, uh, that would take place over centuries. And so shortly after the flood, he, he began to work towards this plan. The nations were formed after the flood, and then they rebelled against him. And so he said, well, all right, fine. If you guys as nations want to rebel against me, then I'll make my own nation. So he chose the, the most unlikely candidate, a, a guy and his wife who couldn't have children, Abraham. And through that man created a nation by which he could bring forth Christ over the time. And so that left the Gentiles out. You wonder why we don't have an appreciation between the holy and the profane? Why, we, why it's sometimes we're 
as the Jews would refer to us as dogs. You know, dogs eat nasty things. They do nasty things. They're just really sort of an unclean animal. No offense. I like dogs. Uh, but after they're washed and cleansed, right? No. <laughs> but we just, we don't get a lot of things that the Jews, and we think, yeah, well, it's just dogma. Come on, man. Well, let's look at what Paul said in Ephesians 2. You can turn there, Ephesians 2.11. This is why he wrote it. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. He understood their mindset. 2.11 says, Therefore you, who were once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth, of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood. And so we find ourselves here. This is our place, but God, through his great mercy, brought about salvation for all mankind. Now, let's go to, finally, after that <coughs> unbrief <laughs> introduction, Leviticus 1-17. through 17. Now the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock, of the herd and of the flock. If this offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priest Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that it is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest's son, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood, which is on the fire upon the altar. And he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all the altar has a burnt offering, or burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offerings is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces, its head, and its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice of the offering is of the birds, then he shall bring his offering, a turtle dove or young pigeons, the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it upon the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar, and he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it to the side of the altar on the east side 
unto the places for the ashes. Then he shall split it at swings and shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. What we see in verse 1 here is, is God's initiative. And we're not going to make it through the complete chapter here, so just you're fine. You're going to be fine. I'm not going to run you over. Is that God always takes the initial steps in, in instructing and training us for worship. Uh, he's not, as I said earlier, he's not left it up to man to figure out how uh, we're to worship him. Uh, so it's up to us to seek the Lord and to understand him. And I think if we're going to worship God, we need to start with an introduction to him. And the various words uh, that are translated from the Hebrew into the English for us. Um, but I like uh, what we see here. Is, is In verse 1 it says, the Lord called Moses. Literally summoned him. Now, he has this little tent of meeting that he goes to and in this tent of meeting, the Bible tells us that the Lord came and was there in the tent of meeting. And as a man speaks to his friend face to face, the Lord would meet with Moses there face to face. Now, this is none other than the angel of the Lord, the, uh, the which is a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of God. We read about the character of the angel of the Lord. But this is none other than uh, the pre-incarnate Christ sitting there in the tent having a, in the form of an angel and having a face-to-face conversation with Moses. So he's being summoned. Now, I, I can only imagine what that call would have been. How is it that God calls you? He called Moses. He summoned him. And when someone is summoned into the presence of God, that's, that's an amazing thing. But think about how God has called every man and every woman and every soul that has ever existed. God has ways of communicating. God has ways of summoning us and to get our attention. Now, some of us had to go through some serious issues in life before our ears would be even remotely open to hearing the voice of God. We all have our personal testimonies on how we came to Christ. And for those of you who may be sitting here or those of you who may be listening online and you have not yet heard that summon, you've not yet heard the voice of God call you to himself, then you need to listen up because God is not silent. God, is, God does speak. And if you'll not be intimidated by the, the magnitude of his being, and not be intimidated by the fact that you are naturally hostile towards him, and you would just open up your heart just for a moment and ask him to show himself in reality to you. Lord, make yourself real to me. Trust me. God in his love and his incredible grace will show himself to you in such a way you cannot deny that it's him because that's the kind of God we serve. But he calls Moses here. Now, Moses already had the relationship, so he's sort of used to that. So there's an ongoing process there. He's the pastor. He's the leader of this thing, and he needs to spend time with God. One of the things uh, you want to see here is that he's, after calling Moses, that he spoke to him from the tabernacle. 
Well, this is important. What I see from this is something that's so desperately needed in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ, and that is a devotional life. And, and that is mean, what, what does that mean? That means, well, you're devoted to him. Yeah, I get that. No, it, it actually means you're taking time each and every day, and you're spending it with the Lord. You're talking to him as, he, as if he were here face-to-face with you, and you're listening to him, and God will speak to you. The majority of the time that God speaks to us is through his word. Look, I've given you it right here in written form. You want to know me? You want to understand me? Then just read about me. I will reveal myself to you as you give yourself to the word. That's, that's what devotions are about. It's not some legalistic thing. Well, I read my Bible today. God will bless me. Thank you. I mean, what kind of relationship is that? This is what we're talking about. In fact is, as you go through this, and we're going to talk about this shortly. I think I can get this part in. The difference between Lord, all caps in your Bible, and Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And this tells us something about God, and especially in this particular book. But all of us are called, we're summoned to have this relationship with God. And I want to encourage you this week, as you go out, work on your relationship with God. Maybe you've got a little bit lax. You know, these schedules, you've been overrun by your schedule. That happens to us. We live in a very busy culture. We're busy about many things. It happens. But I want to encourage you, take the time, get back on track, get your spiritual house in order, so to speak. Spend time with God. Allow Him to just love you, love on you. I have a fondness for little people, and I'm really fond of my grandchildren. They get you right there, don't they? Even as much as your own children. But I have, uh, and my grandson happens to be on, more on the emotional side of things at five. And um, so I, you know, I pray with him. I was able to watch him uh, this week a little bit. Mom and dad were celebrating their 10th anniversary, so we got the privilege of watching him for a few days. And so, you know, I do the do the devotions with him and pray with him. And, you know, he we're laying in his bed and I'm telling him stories. And, and, and then, you know, it's time for me to leave and, and let him go to sleep. And, you know, he climbs on top of me and wraps his arms around me and squeezes, I love you, Pop. <laughs> now, of course, you know, <laughs> uh, but I think that's sort of how we should sort of picture our relationship with God. You know, the, Paul talks about God has sent forth his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, Father, Father. It's almost like God is, as I'm much bigger than my grandson at this point, that's probably going to change, but um, he wraps his arms around me and he squeezes me, and he tells me he loves me. That's what we do with our Father, isn't it? And he, he takes it in. He, there's that exchange, that loyal love. I'm telling you, that love will break you down and make you the man you're supposed to be, the woman you're supposed to be, the servant of God that you're supposed to be, the imager that you're supposed to be. All because you've responded to the call. He begins to reveal himself. And this is what worship is about. This is how God reveals himself. God is not revealed so much intellectually as he is. Faith is not an intellectual thing. 
Faith is spiritual. It is, a, it is a truth that's in the soul and in the spirit of man. You, can't, you can believe all you want in your mind, but faith is something that's in your heart, your, the deepest recesses of your being. And it starts when you respond to the summon. But let's look at the first word that we see there. In the f- third word, Lord, all caps. And that is the unpronounceable name of God. Y-H-W-H. Now we sort of, and scholars and the Jewish people sort of added some vowels. And there are no vowels in Hebrew. But those are added to help. Because there's sort of like, sometimes some of the words just go without saying. That, and they, they just, you know, writing back then was a little tough. So they kept it to the consonants type of thing. Uh, but they added the A and the E. And so we get Yahweh. Um, but regardless, it's, how do you pronounce Y-H-W-H? Give all my, let me work on that one, would you? Uh, it's the, why is God's name unpronounceable? Well, it's unpronounceable because when you can actually pronounce it, you've now limited God. You cannot limit God. And so as we go through the scriptures, we see, you know, a, a, a sort of a, the least official name used in by in English, Jehovah. That's how we've kind of reckoned some of this, but it's the least official name. So we have different names like Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner, or Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. You see, we start putting all these other endings on it because God is everything that we could possibly ever need. He's our provider. He is our healer. He is our righteousness. He is our banner. He's our warrior. You know, all these things. So, uh, the unpronounceable name of God. And so the the Jewish people would not pronounce this unpronounceable name. They would just remain silent. Or they would use the word Adonai, which is Lord or, you know, ruler. And that's the L, lowercase o-r-d. And so when you are reading through your Bible and you see that distinction, you'll know that the caps, all caps is Yahweh, and Lord, lowercase, is Adonai, ruler, and, or the master. And so this is important. Now, some of you have become good Bible students, and you're digging in, and you, you go to your little uh, dictionary, and you look up the word God, and you see the word Elohim. Now, here's another one. It's sort of God, when you see God used in reference to the Lord, um, it's more of the, the generic term. I mean, the, the world uses the word God. It's, so it's sort of the generic. And so the people of the world can, can be accurate in who God is, or they can be inaccurate, depending on uh, their, their paradigm, their structure. Some people use the word God, and they're referring to a false God, some deity uh, in a deity that, uh, religion that they've been rela- raised in. And it wouldn't necessarily be the God of the Bible. But in the Hebrew, the word for God is Elohim. And we see uh, that, uh, if you're familiar at all, the I am means it's a plurality. And so, you know, the Christians um, who've been taught know that this is uh, kind of an inference to the one God being in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you can get kind of sidetracked with this word, because 
it, this isn't everything that we think it is. You know, a lot of times when we are reading the Bible, we get just maybe a, a, a general understanding. We begin to apply that generality across the board, and that's kind of scary. You have to be careful with that. And this, here's, here's the case in point. Elohim, most of the time, does refer to God, to Yahweh, uh, to the Lord, but not always. Um, the word Elohim is used of foreign gods. Uh, it's used of the departed dead. It's used of God's sons in heaven, in that realm, called the sons of God. And so we have to be uh, understanding how we look at it. We think Elohim, we immediately think Trinity, and that's the way it is throughout the whole Bible. Well, the quandary of this word, which really isn't a quandary, is just understanding the meaning. How can Elohim be fallen angels how can it be demons? How can it be the departed dead and, and be God Almighty? Well, because Elohim just simply means spirit being. And really, probably the best way to look at this word Elohim is it's more like, as Michael Heiser, the great Bible scholar that he is, puts it on in simple terms for us. I love it. He said we should think, have in mind um, that it's more of a place of residence, in the unseen realm, the realm that we know is there but we can't see and we're aware of, uh, where the angels dwell, where God interacts with them and that whole kingdom of light that we really like knows there but we can't see, uh, that is the realm of the spirits. And so uh, it's a place of residence. God is the spirit. So when you're reading through the Bible and you see uh, the word God and you think, well, that's Elohim and in that great, um, just know that it's used in different ways. And actually, this is the word that Jesus was using in John 10, and he's referring to Psalm 82. Uh, is it not written in your word that I said that you are God's? <laughs> you know, this is sort of helps clear some of that up in what Jesus was talking about. Uh, so as you're reading through this, the best way, another way to process would be that All Elohim are spirits, but there's only one father of all spirits. So Elohim with a capital E would be Yahweh. All lowercase would be potential other gods or departed spirits or whatever else. But uh, look at it that way. I take the time because Yahweh to me is speaks of personal, and re our relationship with God is personal. We're not involved in religion. Well, the world calls what you and I are involved in, following Jesus as religion, but we are involved in a relationship with the true and living God. And Yahweh, which is used throughout Leviticus, is talking about this personal relationship with God. Remember, I have come down to rid you and to take you out of bondage and rescue you and redeem you and take you as my people. That's God saying, you are my people. I am your God. That's personal relationship. We should never reduce coming to church or assembling together as just performing our religious duty. That is so far removed from what we're about. It's about a personal relationship. And so it's very important that we know how to 
process and view the God in whom we serve. Now, next week, we're going to continue through here and how the relationship that God has with Moses and the relationship that God has ordained that Moses would have with the children of Israel. But as we close up here today, just I think it's important that we we just simply be reminded that <clears throat> God loves us for who we are. He's not going to ever leave us or forsake us. He's more concerned about your life and your destiny and your purpose and your provision and all the things about your life than you are. And if you ask him and you seek him, he will direct your every step and he'll lead you to a life of utter fulfillment, a life that you cannot experience unless you do it that way. And so this is what Leviticus is all about. Just to be reminded that it's not about us. It's all about God. It's all about us learning how to worship, learning how to understand what he requires, and learning how to serve him in an acceptable manner. And may God help us uh, to do so. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you never mislead us. You never deceive us. There are many times, Lord, that we have expectations that we lay upon you and we get our feelings hurt. But, Lord, you're always there to bring instruction. You never stop teaching us. You never stop speaking to us. You're always there to to lend a helping hand and bring encouragement to us. And I pray, Father, for this special work to be conducted in every heart in this room in this sanctuary, Lord, that you'll do your special work of bringing us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?